0: Hey there, this is Will Gadara, and thank you so much for tuning in. Today's going to be a fun episode because this is the family episode. Yeah, we use the word family in our industry quite often. We talk about the teams that we work with as being our family, and the best of us actually pursue our teams truly like they are family. But today, this is actually literal family because today I have my dad on the show. I quote my dad all the time. And the reason he's on is for one of the things I quote him as having said, perhaps most often adversity is a terrible thing to waste. And that's a quote that I've used for myself and for others so many times this year. It's also a quote that so many people have reached out to me in reinforcing over the past six months. But he said so many other things that have truly shaped the way that I think of the world and and how I approach it and my career The secret to happiness is always having something to look forward to. That's something we can all stand to be reminded of right now. The need to create those things to look forward to such that we don't get so lost in the challenging times that we're experiencing that we don't forget to look up and recognize that there's still a lot of great things on the horizon, especially if we are intentional in making sure that there are. One of the plaques he gave me when I was a kid was, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? The entire idea being that we can manifest our own destiny if we have the courage and the conviction to say out loud what we want to accomplish and not let our insecurities get in the way of that for fear that if we do say it and don't achieve it, we might let ourselves down. But in remembering that if we are not confident enough, to scream from the mountaintops, the things that we want to accomplish, well, that's pretty certain that we won't. He said some things to me when I was a kid, like success comes in cans and failure comes in can'ts. Kind of a continuation of the last one, just giving yourself the grace to believe in yourself. He's given me so many words of wisdom over the course of my career. And so every time I have the ability to convince him (laughs) To do something with me in the Welcome Conference, well, I go for it. And this conversation, well, I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. You do, 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 do. Weekly Specials. I'm so excited to have my dad on the podcast today. A lot of you, anyone who has been to the Welcome Conference in person knows him. He's a staple there. And a couple of years ago became, I think, a part of like the real history of the conference in his speech, which drew the first ever standing ovation. Adversity is a terrible thing to waste. In addition to being my dad, he's also an extraordinary restaurateur. He came up with Howard Johnson's, then Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then Ground Round before becoming the president of Restaurant Associates, and then ultimately moving west to be the CEO of Wolfgang Puck's Food Company. After that, he was the CEO of Au Bon and then finished his career as the CEO of Pizzeria Uno's. I quote him relentlessly. He is truly my mentor and also happens to be my best friend. Dad, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Good to see
0: you. It's good to see you too. So as you know, for the month of October at the Welcome Conference, we were talking about grit. And I think this one's actually airing within the first couple days of November. And so this is the final conversation about grit in the 2020 Welcome Conference. And I'm excited to be having it with you because, listen, everyone out there who's ever heard me do a podcast or listen to me talk on stage knows that I spend most of my time quoting you. And every once in a while, it feels appropriate that rather than me quoting you, perhaps people should be able to hear directly from you. (laughs) And everyone knows that I think you're an extraordinary father, but you are also an extraordinary restaurateur who has experienced your fair share of adversity. And so today, what I want to do is just have a conversation about some of those moments of adversity you faced, how you navigated through them, what you learned from them, in hopes that as our industry is collectively going through its own very significant dose of adversity that we can all learn and be inspired by your experiences. And so maybe just to kick us off, what does grit mean to you? The best
1: definition of grit that I've seen, and and, and I, I feel strongly about it, it's passion and perseverance. And taking it to the next level would be not a short amount of passion and perseverance, but it's the it's long
0: game. Let me call it the long game. I love that. <laughs> Staying in the game as long as possible, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... We're going to get into later in your career with Kentucky Fried Chicken, where I want to talk about that being like one of the first major doses of adversity and how you dealt with it. But for a lot of people that don't know, could you just talk about how you ended up in the restaurant business to begin with? Hmm.
1: I always wanted to be a
0: doctor from the time I was a little
1: kid and I was in pre-med. My father was a plasterer, retired from plastering and uh, took over a restaurant down in Miami. So that summer. It was after my sophomore year. I went to work with him at the restaurant because we were very close, as you and I are. And I wanted to help as much as I could. Didn't know anything about food. I mean, food was, you know, just fuel. It wasn't anything that I looked forward to. Just, I was between studying and playing sports and I needed fuel. So I was helpful, but not extremely helpful. So when I got back to school, I I took a course in restaurant hotel management to, to maybe learn something to maybe be a better help really enjoyed it next semester i took two courses and then switched to restaurant and hotel management
0: out of pre-med so i've always said that no matter what you did when i was growing up because of our relationship i would have wanted to do that too and so you're a restaurant guy so i became a restaurant guy it just so happened that i fell in love with it but i guess what i'm hearing is that i was almost a doctor (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you did that. You, you helped your dad at the diner down in Miami. And then what was your first job? It was with American
1: Airlines. Sky Chef's a uh, wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines. And it was phenomenal. It was 1968. It was still a big deal flying. The food was very impressive. The menus were impressive. I was working in, first in Oklahoma City and then Oklahoma City promoted to Phoenix after a couple of months. I was working in Phoenix, really enjoying the idea of flying the celebrities, you know, coming through the airport. It was a big deal. I mean, back in those days in Phoenix, as hot as it was, you still got out of the plane, went down the stairs and walked into the terminal. I mean, there were no jet bridges or anything else. It was the early days of flying. And then I was with American Airlines maybe five months at the time when I heard that If you're with them six months, you can be on a military leave of absence. So if you end up going into the military, drafted or otherwise, they'll hold your job, you'll build your seniority, and you'll have a job waiting for you when you came back. And that was a big deal because jobs were sparse back then. So I went down to the draft board in Phoenix and and talked to them and didn't know if this was the right thing to do. But I couldn't think of any other way of of saying, hey, look, if, if my draft notice comes in, Would you uh, hold it until December 21st? Because I started with American on June 21st.
0: And for people listening, we're talking about being drafted to Vietnam.
1: It was was the Vietnam era. And yes, got drafted. (laughs) Most people went to Vietnam, not everybody. But so I went down to the draft board and I said, what are my options? And they said, well, if you put in, uh, you can be drafted and it's two years. And if you enlist, you can go to officers candidate school and it's a three-year commitment. And you know, when you're 21, a year is a big deal. And I said, well, let me think about it. And I got slept on it and decided that if I ended up going to Vietnam, I wanted to be in in a, an officer's position to be able to make some of my own decisions rather than being an enlisted man and relying on some officer. And so I did. I uh, called them and said, no, I'll enlist. So they said, well, come on down. And I did. And my first day in the I flew to Fort Dix, New Jersey. It was New Year's Eve. And the next morning, because it was New Year's Day, after New Year's Eve, no cooks showed up. No army cooks showed up. (laughs) uh, We're at the mess hall, and here are all these new recruits that were on the bus with me. And I said, well, I can make eggs. You know, uh, I'll I'll make eggs for you guys. So that was my first thing in the army, making eggs.
0: (laughs) So... My intention in this conversation was to talk about your career, but we're talking about grit and we just stumbled on OCS, Officer's Candidate School. That must have been insanely difficult. Are there any like memories from from that season in your life that kind of make you think about grit?
1: Well, actually, even prior to getting to OCS, you go through basic AIT and then OCS. And OCS is six months. And at Port Dix, New Jersey. I mean, everybody was coming down with URI, upper respiratory infection. A lot of the guys had tents around them. It was, it, and it's pretty contagious. So we went from Fort Dix to Fort Leonard Wood. I got to Fort Leonard Wood, and I ended up with 104 temperature. They put me into the hospital there, and the way they treated it was no no sheets, no blankets. You just froze, you know, to keep your temperature down. And so I my mean, parents had no idea. What was going on because they hadn't heard from me for now almost a week and i would call them no more than a week i would call them typically once a week so finally i called them and they said how you doing and i told them what was going on my uncle was a congressman out of connecticut a u.s congressman so after freezing for about three or four days all of a sudden there was a a doctor and a bunch of nurses came over and you know all of a sudden i got a blanket uh, i felt pretty good about uh, having some poll that was that was
0: this isn't the inspiring story i was looking for you to tell grit is calling your uncle who's a congressman and getting a blanket is that the story we're telling right now
1: well, at, least it, at least it got me from having to eat grits Let's Talk about <laughs> grits every morning and there's nothing worse than grits in the army
0: but is it when when you see movies about basic training it's all about people having to get through it right and people end up not making it through it was that the case yeah, a lot of guys, I mean they're drafted, so they're gonna make it through. They just, you know, might get
1: recycled, meaning they get pushed back a class or whatever it was. But guys are just, you know, like we, we go on these forced runs between basic or AIT and guys would just be collapsing, falling off to the side. There were like one time we were late, getting to some of the guys, it was the middle of winter, putting on all these clothes, our drill sergeant was just pushing guys. And at the top of the stairs, he'd be pushing guys down the stairs. And I was the platoon leader. These are my guys. I mean, we're all the same age. And, and well, no, I was older. Some of the, the guys who had gone to college. There were a bunch of us that went to college, but there were a lot of young kids there too. And I was so pissed. By the time I got everybody out of there before he could, uh, you know, throw them downstairs or whatever, I got to the, the storm door and hit it so hard that the glass shattered. And I thought for sure this is going to be this is, is, <laughs> is going to be a real problem. But I was I was sufficiently pissed that they were ta- they were abusing my guys, and nothing happened. I was shocked. Nothing ever happened. Nobody said a word. I don't know what happened after that.
0: I mean, we're going to get through like some of the moments you faced in your life and in your career, and I, I just I guess I have to wonder because I've never experienced anything close to an experience like that and the intensity and the physical intensity of something like basic training. Do you think that that actually contributed to your tenacity? No, I think I always had, I I had that. I mean, back to just
1: grit itself from OCS, I went to jump school, you know, to get my airborne wings and I got a problem with my Achilles heel to the point where I was, I had difficulty uh, running and you do a lot of running and a lot of jumping and and, uh, jump school. And, Randy Ellington who was in OCS with me was my roommate and one night I said to Randy Randy you got to stand behind me when we're in formation and if I start keeling over just prop me up stand behind me so they can't see you but just prop me up if I didn't want to get recycled and in jump school I wanted to you know continue and finish two week intense training but a lot of guys did i mean they uh, did have problems you'd you know, you're jumping out of the plane and the chute doesn't open, or if you're slipping on top of somebody else because you're going out pretty quickly and you lose your air. And really in jump school, learning how to do a military jump is all about landing in the ground. That's where most of the training takes place because you hit the ground so hard. You're coming down from a low height. You're trying to get to the ground as quickly as possible because you're exposed to enemy fire if you're up there for any length of time. And a lot of guys, broken ankles, destroyed knees. I mean, it was there
0: was a lot of fallout during jump school. Fortunately, I got through it. He propped you up and he got through it. He, he propped me up. Okay, so then you went to Vietnam. You did that, you came back home, and American Airlines was still holding your job.
1: Yeah. They flew me to New York City. I said, where would you like to work? Would you like to go back to Phoenix? And they said, why don't, you, why don't you fly out there and take a look? And it was just too calm. It was too settled, Phoenix. And so I came back and I said, what's the worst location you have? I mean, I'd already lost three years of my life. I saw a couple of guys that I had graduated college with, and they were married. Some of them owned homes. homes. Some of them had kids. And I had a 5,000 BTU air conditioner and a rocking chair. That was all I had. So I came back to American Airlines and said, uh, what's the worst location you have? That's where I want to work. And it was Rockaway Boulevard which did all the 747s and DC 10s for JFK. So that's where I went to work. And how long were you there? One year. I was there for a year. Got promoted a couple of times. My uncle had Kentucky Fried Chicken, the franchisee. He was the franchisee for Cape Cod and New Hampshire. And he, needs, he just needed a partner. So I partnered up with him and took over the KFCs. And that was 19... 19- 73, 74. 1974, the uh, OPEC became an entity out of the Mideast, and they started controlling oil and gas flows. And we had this major gas crisis here in the United States. Depending on your license plate number, you could get gas on certain days. There were lines getting gas. I'm driving between the Cape and New Hampshire, and money was tight, and people couldn't get to restaurants. And I decided then that I think I want to go the corporate route. I don't want the small private business. Uh, the timing is wrong. The business couldn't afford both him and I. So I went to work with uh, Ground Round. It was a division of Howard Johnson's. And going from franchisee with a bunch of different companies, I became a manager with uh, Ground Round training. I was a trainee
0: with uh, Ground Round. And then how long are you with Ground Round? Ten years. Ten years. Wow. And so you're pushing... I know you obviously very well, but I think a lot of people who don't know you, what you just said, when you got back from Vietnam, you felt like you were three years late. And so you put your head down and worked with reckless abandon because you're a really, really competitive guy and you had pretty big aspirations. And so you're at Grand Ram for 10 years. What position do you get to? I was vice president of operations for the country. And then where'd you go from there?
1: Restaurant Associates in New York City. This was uh, 1984. And I was commuting between New York and Boston. We were living in New York. You were going to school there. We lived in Westchester County, Sleepy Hollow. I'd leave uh, uh, Sunday night, drive to Boston, and uh, come home on Friday night. And that's when your mother got sick. So when she was diagnosed with cancer, I continued doing this because I didn't know where it would lead to. But then, when she came out of the operation, handicapped, there was no way I could be in in Boston during the week. So I left. I did some consulting work in Connecticut and started working to understand what her situation was and and get us squared away given the circumstance.
0: Okay, so let's pause here for a second because this is obviously the first major, major dose of adversity. One that obviously was my mom. I encountered adversity in it as well, although I was a kid and pretty reasonably insulated from the realities of it or at least not fully aware of the realities of it and so just tell me where you were at in life before mom was diagnosed with cancer were you happy what were you looking forward to just paint the picture for me a little bit i'll think about the fact that your mother
1: was vibrant she was a flight attendant with american airlines and american airlines at the time was probably the best airline in in the in maybe the world but certainly the country a lot of long-term employees and they were very proud to work for american airlines so with her travel benefits we did a lot of traveling and two income family she was doing very well she'd been a flight attendant for what 18 years and i was doing very well and you know you were the happiest little bugger on the planet i mean you you were just always happy life was great and then it changed Changed in one doctor's appointment,
0: And yeah. tell me how it changed. I mean, obviously, the implications on life are pretty clear. What about the implications on work?
1: Well, I couldn't continue operating as vice president of operations. I, was, I had, on my own, started shopping around to because I wanted to start my own business. In spite of the excitement I had doing what I was doing with Round Round, I knew Aaron Spencer and the folks at Uno's. Aaron had, you know, started the Pizzeria Uno chain, and so uh, I was in the process of negotiating for Westchester County, Connecticut, and Rhode Island as a franchisee. That was moving along well when your mother was diagnosed. When she had the surgery, and we realized that life was not going to be the same, I started talking to uh, Mike Hostage, who was the CEO, Chairman, and CEO of Howard Johnson's about maybe buying the ground rounds in Westchester County so I could stay close to home, but we couldn't make that deal. So that's when I left. That was a
0: tough decision. I mean, I remember when I finally got to start my business, it was a big moment for you because when mom got sick, whether it was due to financial stability or the need to be on a big company's health insurance plan, it basically took away your dream to start your own business. Yeah, it was impossible. I mean, there'd be no insurance, and and the cost to take care of her was
1: unbelievable. And the time. I didn't know how much time I could devote to a new business. And when you start a new business, it's 150% of your time, not some portion of 100%.
0: So for me, you've always been a rock. I, I describe you as like a superhero. I've never really seen you sweat. I've never seen your shoulders drop. I've never seen you question your conviction. But I'm not sure I've asked you this before. But in that moment, your dream of having your own company was taken away. And this perfect little family experience you'd, you'd set up for yourself was, was gone. And maybe you didn't even realize the extent to which it was at that point, because mom wasn't yet a quadriplegic. But I guess I just want to understand, because there's so many people right now who are questioning Everything, like were there moments when you were just like feeling terribly, not really sure how you're going to get through it. All of that, like were there mo- you you always projected strength, but I have to imagine there were moments of weakness. So, I'll
1: give you an example, and there were a number of examples, but this might capture my feelings. So it was at night, and you know we had these all these great restaurants in New York City, and I'd like to go from restaurant to restaurant and greet some of the customers that I knew and and oftentimes wouldn't wouldn't leave until the earliest I'd leave would be somewhere between eight and nine o'clock. I'd leave before the theaters let out or I'd leave after that traffic had uh, dissipated. So this particular night, I couldn't make it before I, I was still too busy. I couldn't leave before the uh, theaters let out. I waited until I don't know what it was, maybe 10, 10 o'clock, 1030, something like that. And I could just fly home. It was like twenty-five miles, and and I'd make it in about thirty-five minutes, forty minutes max. And I got onto the West Side Drive, and it was bumper to bumper. What is going on? What's all this? Tra- I was exhausted. You know, uh, you were probably in the car many times when I would just take naps at red lights. You know, because I was exhausted. And it was unfortunate because I know it's disrespectful, but I'd, I'd wait for the car behind me to beep or someone to, to beep to wake me up and I'd take off to the next red light. That's where I got some of my sleep. And this particular night, I was more than exhausted and I just couldn't believe it. It was like, and I still have an hour to go when I get home. I mean, I got to take care of your mother. I got to clean her up, get her ready for bed, maybe change the catheter, you know, and then I, my pre-med, I'd keep, I I'd keep trying to rationalize, okay, well, you wanted to be a doctor. I mean, here's your opportunity. In this particular case, I still had an hour to go. And I still had probably another hour to drive. I started beating on a steering wheel. And when I say beating on a steering wheel, my hands were raw by the time I finished. I was so upset. How am I going to put up with this? How can I deal with this? Constantly, constantly, constantly. And, and never knowing where it was going. Never knowing what the final outcome would be. You know, I, I would check with the doctors the first few years what can I expect? What can I plan for? Is she going to be around for five years, three years, two years? Is she going to be, what condition is she going to be in? But it's just slow deterioration. And I don't think I ever got ahead of that. I don't think I ever got to the point where, okay, it can't get any worse.
0: When you, you say adversity is a terrible thing to waste and how you can't control what's what comes in your way, but you can control how you react to it, what you learn from it, how you grow from it. You talk about growth happening outside of your comfort zone. When did that start to, to happen? Because I, I, like, I can't imagine in the moment you're like, all right, well, there's a good dose of adversity. I'm going to become a better person for this. Like, that would make you insane. How long before you started to see that you couldn't change the situation, but you could most certainly take control of how you approached it?
1: Well, that's a good question, Will. And I'm not sure I can answer that easily. I know that it was about hindsight. You know, when I saw how terrific you were and how terrific you became, I realized that, you know, okay, it did make me a better father. And then meeting Juliet and, and eventually getting married, I know I became a better husband because I I, I more than appreciated the stuff that she did because. That had never been done for me or hadn't been done for me. In hindsight, I was able to look back on it and say, I had to become a better father. I had to become a better husband, which made me a better man. But it was in hindsight. And I can't tell you when that was. It might have been, you know, as late as after your mother passed away. I may not have realized how much of a better person it made me. Although I know at work as a CEO, I was really good at turning around companies and maybe The adversity that I had to deal with, with the constant deterioration and dealing with it, gave me a better perspective on problems and problem solving. Certainly empathy.
0: Yeah. One of the things you also have said to me for a really long time is one of the secrets to happiness is always having something to look forward to. I was four when this happened. So it was a long time ago. (laughs) I can't do the math. But how long, I mean, your life got turned upside down. You have always been someone to put your head down and keep on pushing, but how many years or how long was it before you were able to pick your head back up and see something on the horizon that you were able to look forward to?
1: Well, in, 80, in 96, I left Restaurant Associates because I wanted my my own company in spite of the fact that I wanted to be CEO. I was president of operations, let's say, but I, I didn't have the title, but it, it was essentially COO of Restaurant Associates with all their various businesses, And but I wanted to be CEO. And Wolfgang Puck and Restaurant Associates, we did the Oscars. That's why I met Wolfgang. And he was having problems with uh, his cafes and his business and offered me the job of CEO of his company. So that gave me something to look forward to moving out to uh, – California dealing with the west coast I'd, I'd never really done business in the west coast and my goal was to learn everything that I possibly could and the west coast was still un- unknown to me so gave me that opportunity gave me the opportunity to make the final decision which I wanted to do and that was great gave me something to look forward to and but I had to leave you behind your mother was almost bedridden at that point but it was good for her cuz the weather was better and you know I could bring her outside much more often and, and that was healthy for her but after a couple of years and a few years in california it was more like four to five years in california you were in your senior year i wanted to see you graduate wanted your mother to be back in new england where she had family and and could maybe help take care of her because of her condition my family was in everybody was in boston or boston surrounds and you were at cornell so i got very excited the opportunity to take over obon pan and that was exciting. So we moved to Boston. I remember, well, you know, you had a couple of different bands going at Cornell, and and your mother heard you all the time. She was always in the kitchen in her wheelchair, and you'd be in your bedroom upstairs with your band destroying the house. In high school. In high school. High school, yeah. But in Cornell, you had two bands, and she had never really seen you play. I used to go, when you were playing in some of these uh, nightclubs I'd go stand in the back and just make sure you didn't get killed I was always concerned about that's well, this is high school now in college I was no longer concerned but anyway we were arranged you may remember I'm, I know you remember you were playing in the student union and a cousin of Janet's had a uh, mobile home and we made these arrangements had doctors up in, in Ithaca in case any problems occurred we got a, a special breathing apparatus where I could bring her across campus to get her to the student union and you had made arrangements for us to stay at the hotel there on campus with a handicap room and we got there and this was also a trial run for your graduation which was going to be happening in a couple of months so off we went and it was fabulous I mean she uh, we wheeled her across got to the student union the band was playing and you and she just locked eyes and big smiles on both of you and, and it was like one maybe one of the best best days I had had in a long time and Certainly the absolute best day that she had had in, in many years. And then we never made it to the graduation. She went into a coma that Friday, two days prior to the actual graduation. And then uh, you came home. She was in intensive care, watching her vital signs. It was Sunday. I was reading the paper and sitting in the corner. And, and you know, the vital signs were very, very weak. They didn't expect her to stay alive through the weekend. It was ast- They were astonished she was still alive. You came into the room and, you know, in that booming voice of yours, you know, hey, mom, knowing she couldn't hear you. But all of a sudden, all those machines started just calming down. I mean, she could hear you in spite of the fact she was in a coma. She obviously responded to you. So we stayed there for a while. We went back to the my condo, uh, get you some food. You decided you want to go back and spend more time with your mother. This was late, maybe 11 o'clock at night. Then you called me and said, uh, she's out of her coma. I said it's impossible. He said she is. I'm talking to her. Her eyes are open, and you were there for uh, almost forever. Came back, got a couple of hours sleep, and went to play racquetball. First thing in the morning, and then we were planning on going to the hospital. And when I came out, when we came out of the racquetball court, had a uh, call from the doctor that she had passed.
0: Yeah, and I mean, listen, the idea that your wife, my mom, passed away that day. It was really sad obviously but i'd like to think that it was time for her to move to a better place and to get her legs back and her arms back and to be able to talk again and all that stuff and i think well it's probably time for you to get a second chance at a new life i mean you took care of her for a really 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 long time and i think that's kind of brings us to this next season. So mom passes away. Obviously we mourn as a family for a while, but eventually we get back into the rhythm of life and you start dating. You meet someone new life is going well. So let's tell me what's going on at this season now.
1: Well, Juliet and I, we had met in California, but started dating a couple of years after your mother died. And I mean, it was instantaneous we started living together, and then she moved from California to Boston, and life was fabulous. We got married in 2007. It was a fabulous wedding on the ocean, overlooking Boston. Life couldn't get any better. It was different than anything I had imagined.
0: And so, wait, what what were you doing for a living at this point?
1: I was uh, running Pizzeria Uno.
0: So you're the CEO of Uno's, and I just want to make sure this is not lost on anyone. However many years earlier, life was in an amazing place. You were about to buy a bunch of Unos franchises. Mm. You had a healthy wife, a healthy family. Everything was great. The rug got pulled out. And now this many years later, you're back. You have a wife again. You're super happy. And now you're actually running Unos. Which, by the way, is a testament to the idea that no matter how dark things get, like there's always a light at the end of the tunnel if you give yourself permission to see it. And then what happened? <laughs>
1: so, in short, I'll skip some of the parts, but we had an appointment at Mass General Hospital. I wasn't feeling well. I had digestive problems and I had been going through a bunch of tests. Well, I have to mention the hospital that I was going to, a good hospital, called on July 2nd saying that uh, it was not a problem. Don't worry about it. You're good. And um, I'm simplifying what they said. But in any case, we broke open some champagne and toasted and feeling great. We had an appointment the next day, which we decided not to cancel, although we considered it at Mass General. And uh, we're sitting there and chatting, and and then uh, a couple of surgeons came in, uh, the head of gastroenterology at Mass General, and uh, his hand-picked replacement, Dr. Christina Ferroni. And she looked at me and said, well, we've taken a look at your tests, and we think you have pancreatic cancer. And no different than it was in 1984. 24 years before, when in that single doctor's appointment, (laughs) the world changed. And Juliet, thank God for Juliet, because, you know, there were two things in life now. Well, there's always three, there's always you. But the other two things are, you know, my work and my life, and my life was her. She took over responsibility for the pancreatic side of it, and it gave me the opportunity to be able to, with what I had left, to concentrate on uh, running my company because coincidentally, 2008, as all know, was that great recession.
0: Wait, but hold on, hold on. Before you get back there, just can you try to explain to me? And by the way, I don't think I knew about pancreatic cancer for a month or so after that, to the point of like projecting strength as a father. You wanted to make sure you had a good handle on the situation before you brought me into it. But, and by the time you did, as always, unexpectedly, you were strong. You were optimistic. You had everything all sorted out. You made me think everything was going to be fine. I had to do my own research about pancreatic cancer to understand how deadly it was. But what, like, where were you in your head and in your heart that day?
1: Well, it was like, uh, I hate to be trite, but deja vu all over again. Here we go. The rug has been pulled out. Life will not be the same. I have no idea where this is going. Just like, again, 1984, where where is this going? And how will I end up? And will I be around? And so what do you do in in a a circumstance, in a a situation like that? You make out a will. You know, we went to the lawyer and when the lawyer came here, I was barely awake trying to figure out where everything goes. And you know what's interesting about making out a will? Besides the fact that it sucks, is if you're in that kind of condition and you're doing it because you have to do it, you're looking at your life, whatever you've achieved. Where does it go? Who gets it? And why? And why? You know, I mean, those kind of decisions just—they're tough. I mean, writing out that will, making out that will was agonizing, because you know, it's you're saying my life is going to be over, and this piece of paper. Or these this sheaf of papers this is what it's all about i hated it and uh, i hated doing it and i hated the thought that my beautiful juliet was going to be uh all alone and my son i'll never see my son married i'll never see a grandchild i'll never know what kind of restaurateur he's going to become he was at 11 madison you're at 11 madison you know you've already been there for a few years and business was terrible because of the recession. Are you gonna make it? I probably was at the lowest point in my life at that point. I mean, m- more so than nineteen eighty four, with all the losses that I, you know, that I realized then.
0: But so, this is what I think is so amazing about you, and I think there's a lot of amazing things about you. A lot of people right now in our industry, especially, are at the lowest point in their lives. But I think a lot of people have a hard time getting out of it, like getting out of the funk when it's not clear that things are going to be better by X date and everything's going to be fine. And until people like can see in a very black and white way that things are going to be OK in this horizon, it's hard for them to actually stop letting the situation happen to them, but instead get up and happen to the situation. Or it's hard for them to stop feeling bad for themselves and instead to start believing in themselves. But somehow you have always seemed to me to have this unreasonable ability to just say, okay, time to start fighting again. And I, I, I just love to understand what that looks like for you and where you get, what are you tapping into to do it? This is a Yiddish proverb I've always liked. Better ruin
1: 10 times than die once. And business problems of which over a 40 year period, you know, there were there were many. I never worried about that. I knew I could always figure that out. I just couldn't die. I just couldn't die. And and because I couldn't die, what that means is whatever I need to do, and, and maybe that's what you're you're asking here, whatever needs to be done, I'm gonna do it. And I'm not gonna die. I can't die as much as I thought I would, I can't. And we both know our attitude toward the word can't.
0: So, and so, and so how did you beat cancer? Because you basically anything that anyone said would work to beat cancer. You did all of it, right? (laughs) Everything. And, you know,
1: everybody who has any knowledge of cancer is volunteering information, and you're getting pummeled with ideas and suggestions and and ways of doing things. Well, thanks to uh, Miss Juliet, we did do everything. <laughs> I think one of the best examples. Well, she, you know, she was growing wheatgrass and greens so I could have fresh wheat juice in the morning and greens at night. Maybe the worst was her seaweed baths. Let me tell you, and all your listeners. Don't ever take a seaweed bath. <laughs> it just stinks, and, but it pulls a lot of toxins out of your body. So that's why. I mean, she she'd make up this bath, and I'd get home and on Friday night after getting chemo because I did chemo on Friday. This seaweed bath on Friday night because I was always weak and cold after the after the chemo, and then Saturday she would drive me uh, you know forty miles to uh, get some acupuncture and tweener and some other Chinese disciplines that, that that seemed to work. And then Monday I'd be back at work. And at work, only four people knew what I was going through because I didn't want any sympathy. I didn't want anybody talking to me about it. I'll deal with it and I'll deal with it on my own.
0: I remember, and to be clear, like it was every eastern remedy, every western remedy. It was the chemo, it was the whipple, it was also like crazy types of acupuncture and lasers and and the whole essence being, and I remember leaving a conversation with you, I know you didn't articulate it this way, but you said something to the effect of, well, listen, only 5.4% of people survive this. And a lot of people hear those numbers and they just decide to give up and try to enjoy their last few months as best they can. But the best way to make sure you're one of the 5.4% is to give up. And I'm going to do every single thing in my power. And I'm going to beat it. And what I learned from that is two things. One, and this was actually something I learned at Alinea when we did our our collaboration with them. Their, Their version of our make it nice was whatever it takes. We'll do whatever it takes. And I felt that from you in that season. And the other thing, and it's the quote you gave me when I was a kid. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And basically, you just kept on saying over and over and over and over again, I'm going to beat this. And when you say it out loud that many times, well, it starts to feel inevitable. So, good job. Thanks for beating it.
1: (laughs) Thanks for getting married.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, how long did it take before you were cancer free?
1: Well, as it turned out, I was stage four and it metastasized to my lung, at which point, they did a. They took part of my lung out in order to take the the cancer out. Uh, it was at that time that Juliet and I talked about it, and I've, and you and I talked about it. The three of us talked about it, and it was time to retire. I never expected or planned on retiring, but I had no choice. At this point, I don't know what what's going to be next, and what every time I have left, I'm I'm going to enjoy it. Juliet is Swiss. We're, you know, we go, go visit her family in Switzerland. We travel around Europe. We're having a great time. But in any case, they came back again a year and a half later and they took another section of my lung out. So, in answer to your question, in reality, it's been uh, six years, seven years since that I've been cancer free. But in truth, since 2008, when I finally uh, had the Whipple surgery and all the other things we did i'd say 12 years anyway i mean the metastas- the fact that it metastasized is not a big deal the fact that i have partial lung is a big deal because it's prevented me from jogging and doing some other sports that i'd like to do but I, you know so be it i've replaced it with other sports
0: So I wanted to talk to you on this podcast during this month, because listen, most people have seen your welcome conference speech. I think it's one of the most beloved ones in the history of the conference, but I can't tell you how many times over the last six months, people have called me or reached out to me telling me how much that phrase adversity is a terrible thing to waste was helping them through this season. And You covered some of this stuff in the speech, but I just wanted to go deeper in it because I don't think that there's a moment in, well, the life of our industry, at least since I've been a part of it, that being reminded of these stories, being inspired by the way you navigated through them is more resonant because I lived this with you. But even hearing about it, well, it makes me want to feel, stop, stop feeling bad for myself and get back up and get back to work and say, you know what? You're just fine. And honestly, you can get through this too. And so I really appreciate you sharing. I guess my, my last question is there's a lot of people listening. And if you could tell them all something right now, what's the message you want them to hear from you?
1: Well, does my life right now look like what I thought it would have looked like 10 years ago? 20 years ago 30 years ago even 40 years ago no no it doesn't but is my life pretty incredible sure is if you're asking yourself will i get through this well the answer is a resounding yes will life necessarily look like what you thought it was going to look like a year ago before all this started probably not and i'm not here to sugarcoat road ahead won't be easy But if approached in the right way, can it still be incredible? Absolutely. You've got this. Just press on.
0: I love you so much. I love you too. Thanks, dad. Thank you. Have a lovely day, lad. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to the incredibly generous sponsors who give us the resources to not only create this content, but to deliver it to you. Perhaps the greatest gift is that they've given us the opportunity to connect with you here even during a season when we're unable to connect with you in person. Those are our friends and partners at American Express, at Resi, and at San Pellegrino. We appreciate you all so much. That catchy music you hear, that's by our friend, Aaron Ratier. he's amazing, check him out. And to the team at the Welcome Conference who's been working so hard this year. Obviously, Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis, who you see alongside me on stage. But then Aaron Ginsberg, who's been running the show with a ton of support by Sandra DiCapua. There's a lot to be thankful for, even during a time that feels so challenging. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And if you want to check up on us and see what we're up to, go to welcomeconference.org. It's the weekly special. You do 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 do, do. Weekly special. You le do, 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 do Weekly specials Do 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 do. The weekly special. Do, you do, you do, you do, you do.